Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Tony Zadra and Bob Stickgold on Wind Brains Dream. First, I wanted to encourage you to check out our website at booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the history or science and medicine category for episode number 103. That is my first time chatting with Tony Zadra and Bob Stickgold on Wind Brain Stream. My name is Antonio Zadra. And I am Bob Stickgold. We are the authors of When Brains Dream, Exploring the Science and Mystery of Sleep. You're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Ellinger. Hello, readers. Antonio Zadra is a professor at the University of Montreal and a researcher at the Center for Advanced Research in Sleep Medicine. He's appeared in PBS's Nova and BBC's Horizon, among other publications. Robert Stickgold is a professor at Harvard Medical School and director of the Center for Sleep and Cognition. His writing has appeared in Scientific American and Newsweek, amongst others. Together, they wrote the excellent book, When Brains Dream, exploring the science and mystery of sleep, and it's now available in paperback. Bob, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's warm in Boston. I love to hear that. It's actually a little bit colder here in Austin, so I'm glad another part of the country is uh, getting warmer temps. And Tony, how about you? How are things north of the border today? Well, it's pretty warm here. It's only minus 20. I'm in northern Quebec, um, <laughs> and we just got another foot and a half of snow last night, and we had a foot and a half of snow two days ago, so I'm getting a good workout. Tony, that's minus 20 Celsius. Uh, no, I, I've converted to Fahrenheit. Oh, really? Oh, yes. I'm impressed. There's also 30 mile an hour winds uh, with the cold. So it's, it's good. I will uh, stop complaining about low 40s then here in Texas. Uh, guys, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a couple of months now. We ha had a blast the last time around when the hardback came out, and now the paperback is out for those who uh, didn't catch it the first time. I'm curious, though, because we didn't get into this last time. How did each of you initially get into dream research? And Bob, we'll start with you on this one. I think I got into it because I was interested in sleep and the function of sleep and got connected to Alan Hobson, who um, decades ago, back in the 70s, came up with a, a model for dream construction that I found wanting, but, but it got me interested in it. And that's, that's sort of the scientific side. The other side is says, I'm a, I'm a good dream recaller, and I just love my dreams fascinated by them. Tony, how about you? Um, I actually got interested in dream research because of a dream that I had in college. So that might sound corny, but it's, uh, it's actually what happened. I had in mind uh, to go to medical school, uh, my brother had, and it was almost by default, a uh, thing that would open many doors. Anyways, in college, I had this fantastic dream. Um, what I later found out was a lucid dream, a dream in which you knew that you were dreaming. And I've had them before, but never one so long, extensive and, and uh, compelling in many ways. Anyways, it's the first dream I wrote down. Uh, I started reading a little bit more about sleep and dreams. And at the same time, there were these first studies coming out of Stanford showing that people could study lucid dreams scientifically uh, in the sleep lab. And I was pretty much uh, hooked from then on. 
Guys, as far as thinking about dreams goes, which is the title of chapter one, you discuss the differences in adults and children and not only how they dream, but also how they think of dreams. So, Bob, how do children think differently about dreams? Because I have a seven and five year old and they will both come in with their dreams from time to time. and They are, are as vivid as uh, anything that my wife or I is thinking about while we sleep. No, I think that's true. I think they are as vivid. And there were some early studies that argued that they weren't. But I think those are those were flawed studies in the way they were carried out. I think what we talk about in the book is when kids are even younger, though, and when they first are gaining language and are first able to um, talk about these things, they wake up and they think they really happened. Um, there's, there's no reason them for them. To, they don't know what a dream is. I mean, they've, they've never seen one to, to know it. So they wake up and something fascinating or something scary has happened and they think it really happened. And then, you know, they go running into their parents and, you know, their, their father says, oh, don't worry, that was just a dream. And, you know, you got to realize these are kids who are young with language and they're thinking a dream. Is that a kind of monster? I mean, because there was a monster that was in my bedroom. Um, so it takes a while for them to actually come to first uh, intellectually and then emotionally know that the dreams aren't in fact real events. And so early on, they're, they're completely baffled. And I'll just say that even as adults, we will occasionally have those dreams where we wake up and say, wait, was that a dream? Did that, 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 that was a dream, that must've been a dream. Um, so I don't know how, how different they are beyond those early years, those early times when, when they don't even understand that their dreams. Tony, ideologically speaking, is the response, it's just a dream? Because I've certainly said that before. And when my kids are experiencing nightmares and they're terrified, we'll certainly let them in bed with us. But is it's just a dream the, uh, the right way to go about uh, helping kids understand what it was that just happened? Uh, I think it, it's one way, and it's just one early step. Um, as Bob was saying, you know, the first times you encounter the word dream, you really don't know what they're referring to. It's like something horrible is happening in my bedroom, but I shouldn't be scared. Or as Bob said, maybe dream refers to that monster, or it's my, you know, Uncle Joey, who's dressed up as a monster, but he's, he's harmless. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, uh, as you point out with your children, you know, the kids will come and run to their parents, you know, and they don't want to go back to their room. Uh, they want to sleep in, in, in the bed with their parents because as far as they're concerned, whatever was there is still there. And so it takes a while to, as, as Bob was mentioning, for us to develop this knowledge that our brains, our minds can create these worlds uh, that they do not really take place. Um, but I, I also want to point out that in some cultures, kids are taught differently. They're taught that dreams are, in a, in a real sense, real events. They just take place in other worlds or other dimensions. And this ties into spiritual beliefs and religious beliefs. So, you know, the, our, our children develop views about what dreams are and are they useful, not useful, and what goes on in them and is it important. Largely also it's a function of what society, parents, friends, acquaintances, what they read, tell them about dreams, which is also why as adults, many people have all kinds of beliefs about what dreams are and if they're important or not, or, or even if they are um, somewhere, you know, in some sense real. Uh, 
And um, a, a while back, some colleagues together with Bob also did a fascinating study that we report in the book, also showing that some adults with some sleep disorders, narcolepsy, can confuse their dreams with reality. And so they will wake up from a dream, but they will be convinced that what occurred in the dream actually took place. And this confusion can last over days or weeks uh, before they realize that the events, it doesn't make sense that they happen. So it, it's, it's fascinating and tricky. So is it a, a right thing to do? You know, yes, it's just a dream, uh, maybe, but then we'd have to elaborate and, and see what does the child, what do they hear from, from that term? It's a dream and how do they feel? And, and then to elaborate about that. And Bob, speaking of your research, your lab published an article in 2001 entitled oh. Sleep, Learning, and Dreams, Offline Memory Reprocessing. Uh, how exciting was this in the moment, and what did and does it mean? Well, that article was published in Science. Um, it was the first, it was our second, we had had a paper the year before in Science about dreaming, um, these two were the first papers on dreaming in science, which is the premier you know, scientific research journal in the U.S., the first two, I think, in 40 or 50 years. So that was the real excitement. The real excitement was, first of all, that dreams are going to be taken seriously now, that dreams can be studied and their content can be studied scientifically, just like we study you know, a virus or just like we study... Um, some memory task. So that was really exciting. That was sort of a, a breakthrough, I think. And the other part of it was that we were just th then in 2001 starting to really appreciate that when we sleep, our brains don't turn off. You know, they're not just shutting down. We're not just resting, that our brains are actively processing our memories from the day all night long and doing some incredible types of processing. And it was only sort of 20 years after that when Tony and I got together to, to write this book, When Brains Dream, that we were able to say, in fact, this, this, that dreaming itself is a form, one of the forms that this memory processing takes during the night. But 2001 got out the, the idea that, that, that sleep, serves as one of its main functions, the processing of our memories from today. And Tony, I'd like you to expand that uh, on that a little bit. How does sleep and dreams, how do those two things impact memory? Uh, well, to come back to, you know, that 2001 study by Bob and his colleagues, um, one fascinating thing about that is that they, they they were studying people who were amnesiac, so people who were unable to form short-term memories of things that they had uh, recently experienced. But they would play a video game, Tetris, that many of us older folks will remember, and some younger ones as well. Um, but even though they could not remember having played the game, they would report having these images as they were falling asleep of these different shapes falling down before them. Uh, and so you have these people who have no memory of a task yet, are having dreamlike images about them that they are recalling, even though they don't know their source. So it gave us a window, not only is sleep involved in various kinds of memory processing, uh, but that dreams may play a role in this as well. And so over the ensuing 20 years, this idea 
which at first had been sort of uh, dismissed by many, it was taken increasingly seriously, studied. And so now we know that uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt that the brain, when it sleeps, does a variety of fantastic, mind-boggling things related to memory. Not, not just consolidating memories, that is making them stronger, but figuring out, you know, where do I file this experience that happened today? What about the emotions that went with it, the social context? I mean, it's the whole, our knowledge of the world and where things, pieces fit in and how this might be useful for in the future. Um, disentangling emotions from events. So the brain we know is involved in all kinds of very useful, uh, I, I would say, essential processes for our well-being, for our understanding the world, for regulating our emotions. And dreams probably tie into the dreams are actually a window inside or into some of these processes. And, and I think this is now very exciting because it brings together many different viewpoints about the neurobiology of sleep, what we know about memory, and also the experience of dreams themselves, not just the underlying neurobiology or what's going on in this area of the brain or with this neurotransmitter, but the experience itself. Why do we have these conscious experiences that we call dreams? And we think that the brain needs to dream to execute some of these functions. There are plenty of great quotes in this book. One of the more memorable ones for me, Bob, is from Harvard psychology professor Dan Schachter, who said, memory is about the future, not the past. What does this mean to you? Well, it, it's, it, it was a real insight into something that if we thought hard about it, we could have figured out, but we didn't think that way. We usually think that memories are about the past. I mean, there's things that happened to us in the past. And, and what Schachter is saying is that, you know, the reason that we evolved as organisms to form memories and then subsequently to have access to those memories is not so that, you know, as we got older, we could sit in our rocking chair and say, you remember, remember back in, in aught five when we went to visit your aunt in New Jersey. I mean, that's not what memories are for. Memories are formed to give us templates to use as we go forward in our life. Memories are so that when we're driving down the road and we look in our rearview mirror and we see this blue light going around and around in the car behind us, we know what that means and we know what we need to do. And we even know how to act and behave. It, it provides us with the information we need um, to do things in the future. I mean, we learn words as children so that we can use those words and understand those words in the future. And it's the same with all of our memories. They're all being created so that they can be used in the future. And the interesting thing about sleep and the interesting thing about dreaming is that seems to be when the brain actually takes the time to figure out how we're going to use those memories. So it's one thing to memorize the fact that uh, New York is actually southwest from Boston, more west, in fact, than south. But it's another thing to then figure out, OK, do I need that information? How would I use that information? As Tony said earlier, how should I file that information? Should I file it under trivia, or should I drive, file it under driving? 
because that's when I'm most likely to use that information. Sleep is when our smarts turn into wisdom. It's when we learn how to use what we know. Bob, dream and nightmare researcher Ernest Hartman called dreaming, quote, nighttime therapy. How does sleep, especially REM sleep, aid in the processing of emotions? Well, I think that in, I would agree with Hartman, first of all. I, I prefer to sleep as, as the poor man's therapist. Um, when we sleep, the brain looks for and finds concerns from our past. And then in our dreams, looks for older memories that are connected somehow to the event that we're concerned about. So there might be other events from the day before, or the week before, or even years before. And it constructs these, these dream narratives, these, these images and, and stories that play out that look at the events of the day that are of concern to us in the light of older memories, incorporating those older memories into a, a dream narrative structure. And of course, if you go to a therapist, that's what the therapist does. They start by saying, okay, this happened to you. This was upsetting to you. What does it mean? What does it remind you of? What does it connect to in your past? Why is it so upsetting? How do you think that might play out in the future? Those are all things that your dreaming brain is trying to figure out on its own. Tony, what is the fundamental difference between REM and non-REM dreaming? Um, well, there are two very distinct uh, phases of sleep. And so um, at, on at least three characteristics. So if you look at the brain activity, if you just have a bunch of electrodes over someone who's sleeping in a lab, uh, when they are in REM sleep, their brain activity looks remarkably like someone who is wide awake. Uh, so that's one thing. Whereas when they're in non-REM sleep, you see these patterns, so these forms of waves, like these slow, high amplitude waves known as delta waves, which you only see during sleep and these other uh, physiological features, these things called spindles and so on. So those are unique to sleep. So REM is different in terms of the overall brain activity that you see. Uh, the other thing, of course, REM stands for rapid eye movement. And so you have your eyes are darting about under your closed eyelids in REM sleep, and you're functionally paralyzed. All your major muscle groups in REM sleep are paralyzed. So you don't act out the content of your dreams. And there's also some key differences um, with respect to the presence or absence of certain neurotransmitters uh, in the brain. So there's a lot of different things going on neurophysiologically in non-REM and REM sleep. However, we know that you can have dream experiences across these sleep stages, and they can be remarkably similar. So the dreams that you might have in your early REM periods in the night, so if you go to bed around midnight, the first one you might have around 1.30 or so, uh, might be very similar, even those from REM sleep, than the dream experiences you might have in non-REM sleep later on in the night. We also know that as the REM cycles continue across the night, your dreams tend to get more and more bizarre, more and more emotional, uh, a bit more vivid. Um, and so they become more, if you want, in, in quotation marks, dreamlike, the kinds of dreams that people often um, want to share or tell others, not these more boring ones. So 
generally speaking, the, the dreams we have in non-REM sleep tend to be more thought-like, sometimes more isolated, less narratively driven and involving. And the ones in, when, when you think of, you know, apex dreaming or again, lucid dreams or nightmares, these highly intense, immersive um, dream experiences, those tend to happen in REM sleep. But there's forms of dreamings that probably take place throughout the night from when you go to sleep. So these images you can have and thoughts that go through your mind as you're falling asleep um, through throughout all the other stages of sleep, including our deepest stages of sleep. And the characteristics of dreams during REM sleep includes a certain inclusion of all five senses. Tony, do blind people, people who have been blind from birth, see their dreams? Uh, that's an interesting question, one that's fascinating fascinated scientists and clinicians for a long time. So the key really depends on at what age did they lose their eyesight. And so if you're talking about here about congenitally blind individuals, they will not have visual impressions in their dreams, uh, just like their waking lives are devoid of any visual stimuli. That being said, other sensory modalities will take their place or will play a much bigger role. And so they'll have dreams where they are explicitly describing sounds, textures, the warmth of the sun on their skin, the fact that they're walking on a sidewalk, but there's a slope, a slight upward grade to the ground. And so they're paying attention uh, to their environment with their other senses that they've fine-tuned and developed much like they have in waking life. If, however, they uh, lose their sense of sight later on, the key age bracket seems to be between the ages of five and seven, then they will retain visual imagery in their dreams, sometimes for uh, decades later. And so the what sensory modalities we experience in our dreams really depends on to what extent they are developed until what age during wakefulness. The same goes for the dreams of the deaf and whether or not they contain uh, sounds. Again, this age, this key brain age of between the ages of five and seven seems to play a key role in whether or not these sensory modalities are maintained. But yes, for uh, almost everyone, sooner or later, we can make the experience of all sensory modalities in our dreams, including some quite rare ones like the sense of smell um, or, or touch and things of that nature or taste. Bob, do most people dream in color or are most of our dreams black and white? This is apparently a, a debate going on in the dream world. And in thinking about it, I feel like I do in color, but I really don't know for sure. What does your research say? Uh, not my research per se, but the research of others over the last several decades says that most people dream in color, and they dream in color most of the time, and they are often unclear in the morning as to whether they did or not. Not. I mean, if I were to ask you about, you know, when you ate breakfast this morning, um, what was in color? Hmm. Well, it'd be hard to say for sure maybe you put some strawberries in your cereal and, and yes I remember they were red or maybe I just knows it I mean so it, it's hard it's hard to think back to memories and be sure how much color you were seeing in it in fact we can only see color 
in a very small foveal cone of our vision when we were awake. Everything out in the periphery that we see is actually being seen in black and white. And we think it's in color because when we turn our head and look at with our fovea, our center of vision at it, we see the color. So it, it's, it, it's clear that most people dream in color. They dream in color most of the time. It's not even totally clear that there are people who don't dream in color. Bob, one of the bigger upsets in this book was finding out that men dream about men over women. There are two times as many men as there are women in most men's dreams, whereas for women, that gender ratio is pretty equal. Why do you think this is? I think it's possible that we live in a somewhat sexist world. <laughs> I mean, I think I think that's really just what it is that 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 men, well, by, by, by the same yeah. token, men are such dogs that uh, part of me wonders why <laughs> men aren't thinking about women twice as much as they are men. Well, you, you could imagine that. Yes, you could imagine that that's how it turned out. But it turns out that for all of men's talking about women, they actually consider men more important. Their main relationships, other than a few romantic and sexual relationships um, tend to be with men. Their colleagues tend to be men. The people of power in their life tend to be men. The people in politics tend to be men. And so those are the people they dream about. Women, on the other hand, have lots of friends and close associates and often more in the, in the workplace have women. And, and so so it balances out for them. But it, it's, it's, I think it's totally just a simple fact that, that the culture places more value on men. Tony, uh, people obviously experience recurrent dreams, not just uh, a couple of times, but literally over and over again, over an extended period of time. Is there more meaning to be extracted from a recurrent dream versus uh, some fleeting moment uh, at the end of one's night? Uh, well, I think so, because if you think that dreams are in, in some way psychologically meaningful in the sense that they tie into your sense of who you are and how you view the world and your place within it, then a dream that reoccurs, that puts forward the same content, the same uh, characters, settings, emotions, um, is certainly a bit even more meaningful because it's coming back with the same uh, message. So I, I think that um, the answer to that is yes, and that it's probably worthwhile if we do remember having these recurrent dreams just to jot them down uh, and to note at what time in our lives they are taking place. So one of the very common um, kinds of recurrent dreams is the infamous exam dream where you're not ready for an exam or uh, you haven't studied or you're getting late to wherever. And, and many people have this even decades after they're finished school. Uh, but when you look at when people tend to report them, even people who have really succeeded well in their lives who are at the top of their game. Often it's in moments of doubt. It's in moments they have a talk to give and they're a little bit worried. And are people going to take me seriously? Or am I living up to expectations? Uh, or maybe you have more worries about, am I actually going to be able to deliver this report on time? You know, is it up to my standards? So 
any of those themes can generate your brain is exploring these concerns that you have. And what is there in your past that ties into that? Yeah, and I've been ready for an exam. So it encapsulates your feeling and maybe uh, your hesitations and your worries um, really quite nicely in an image or in a scene where you are unprepared for an exam. So I think it's a very suitable metaphor for what's going on, just like driving a car off a cliff or something of that nature. So I think some of them are mundane. Some of them uh, are quite fascinating. But to the extent that we have them over a period of time, it's, I believe, worthwhile uh, jotting them down, getting a bit familiar with how they unfold, who the people are, what we feel, what they tell us, and maybe how this relates to what's going on in our lives when we have them. Or if, they make, if those events make us think of something similar that has happened to us in the past. And again, your, your brain, when it streams, is trying to file things, is trying to make sense things, and trying to prepare us for things. And maybe saying, hey, look, you weren't ready for this thing in the past. You're experiencing something similar now. Get ready, or how can you get ready, uh, is, is a good way of, for your brain of going about it. On top of what it's doing on its own while you are asleep and dreaming. But just, Tony, just to, go, go just ahead, to add a, a touch that, I mean, and, and Tony made it clear, I think, but I just want to emphasize that it's not the exam. I mean, the, what, what makes the, that dream more important or more worth paying attention to is not that it's about exams or about your teeth falling out, if you're having a dream about teeth falling out, or if you're showing up in class you know, in school with no clothes on. I mean, it's not the actual dream content that's important and, and valuable and worth paying attention to. It's what that, what that dream is sort of categorically and to look for what is it in your, you know, what is it in my life today that makes me feel like I'm going to school with no clothes on? What am I so totally unprepared for and, and, and afraid I'm going to be embarrassed by in the coming future? That's interesting. So that gets back to the general emotional processing versus the real world actually playing out in your mind then, huh, Bob? Right, because we in fact don't replay events from our past in our dreams. I mean, we refer to those as episodic memories. So I remember what I had for breakfast this morning. I can actually remember sitting there. I can remember pouring the cereal and putting in the blueberries and putting on my iPad to read a book while I'm eating. I can remember all of this. And that would never get into a dream in that form. We dream about what happened. We don't dream what actually happened. Tony, how are sleepwalkers so seemingly aware of the world around them, even as the brain remains pretty sound asleep? And are they dreaming about what they're doing? Uh, another fascinating uh, question and sleep disorder. So sleepwalkers are neither awake nor are they fully asleep. And when you look at what's going on in the brains and minds of sleepwalkers, when they're having an actual episode, is that parts of their brains are in fact awake. So their eyes are usually open. They do perceive their environment, what allows them to go down some stairs or open a door, or manipulate an object. On the other hand, there's other parts of the brain which are not awake, and so they lack judgment. They misperceive things. They see dangers where there are none. They might misrecognize 
objects that should be familiar. So uh, a little red dot on your uh, PVR recording becomes a laser pointer from a sharpshooter, right? So you, you have all these different interpretations of things that you are seeing. You also might sense that you are in danger, your family's in danger, and so you're engaging uh, in quite agitated behaviors. So it's, it's a unique state because they are interacting with their real physical environment. They're not, they're not in their dream anymore. However, they're still having dream-like thoughts sometimes, uh, or they may see things in their physical environment that are not there. So they might wake up in the dark and instead of seeing their painting on the wall, they interpret it as a hole in the wall. And not only is it a hole, but there is a poisonous gas coming into their bedroom. And so what must the person do? They got to get out of the house and get their kids out of the house and their spouse. And so they'll wake them up and say, you know, there's a poison, there's a poison, we got to get out. And so there's like a, a dreamlike quality to it, but they aren't asleep dreaming. They are interacting with people and their physical environment. So it's again a unique state with where the brain is both asleep and partially awake and depending on which areas are awake and which remain asleep you have episodes that can be really simple very complicated that last just a few seconds can last 20 minutes where the person is very agitated and actually leaves the house or becomes aggressive or they might just you know get up go to the kitchen and fix themselves something to eat something disgusting they would never eat so they might put, you know, relish with peanut butter on frozen cardboard they took out of the freezer, and that is a snack. Um, and so they do all these, you know, unusual and bizarre things. Um, so this is a, a particular disorder where we think that dreams do uh, play a role, at least in adults, because they will remember these dreamlike uh, thoughts and emotions that sort of explain their behaviors, no matter how bizarre they may appear to an outsider. Well, Tony, you guys uh, discussed it in the book, and we talked about it the last time around, the uh, concept of uh, unispheric sleep, I think is what it's called, where dolphins and migrating birds, they will continue moving and operating uh, in a manner where they're not completely still. They, you know, Birds are, are still flying across the Pacific Ocean, let's say, but they are getting sleep at that time. Is this the closest that humans come to unispheric sleep then when they're, when they're sleepwalking and able to recall things like this and actually able to communicate with other people? Um, that's one idea that some people have uh, developed. Now, of course, unihemispheric sleep, where one hemisphere of the brain sleeps at a time, is a product of evolution that allows, for instance, you know, dolphins to fall asleep, uh, but also to surface, to breathe. Um, you mentioned also migratory birds, uh, but even there's some ducks that will um, sleep in, in, in groups, but the ducks that are on the outer limits will literally sleep with half a brain and eye open, the eye towards whatever is on the outside, potential dangers. All the other ducks towards the center are sleeping with both hemispheres. So this is something useful that has been honed over a very long time. Now, you know, sleep is phenomenally complex. And if you think about how difficult it is for some people to fall asleep or to get our children to learn to fall asleep or to let go. And then there's people who develop insomnia and there's all kinds of sleep disorders, all kinds of things that can go wrong when you are asleep and trying to transition back to wakefulness like it happens uh, with sleepwalkers or people with 
uh, sleep terrors as well. And so you have on the one hand, these natural models of what can happen in the brain when some parts are awake and some parts are asleep, but accidentally or because of an underlying condition or disorder, something similar, though not that adaptive, uh, can happen in adults in the case, for instance, of sleepwalkers. So there are parallels and the natural world is filled with um, really exciting and fascinating examples of these different states of being that brains can find themselves uh, in. And so this allows us, it gives us one way to try to understand what's going on in the human brain when people are having these kinds of experiences, these dissociated states, if you wish. Bob, Carl Jung was a firm believer in telepathic dreaming, and Freud actually eventually came around to the idea as well. Do you believe in telepathic dreaming? Alas, I don't. <laughs> um, I, 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 when, when people come and ask me about it, um, it's usually not about telepathic. It's usually about dreams that predict the future. And, and, and I, what I tell them is, well, I've got three possible explanations for it. One is that your brain is actually telling you what's going to happen in the future. And the example I give is a woman who told me that her, she had a dream that her father had had a heart attack and died. Uh, and the next morning got a call from her mother who told her that in fact, her father had had a heart attack and died. And she said, and Bob, it's not like he was you know, sick and that I knew he was at risk. In fact, I talked to him just the day before and he talked to me about this great tennis game he had played. He said he was playing so hard that he ended up with a stiff shoulder. Now it turns out that a stiff shoulder is a, a sign of a heart attack. And although she didn't remember that fact when I asked her, it's most likely that sometime in her past she had learned that or been told that. And as she was dreaming and thinking about her father, this memory of the stiff shoulder came back and the brain said, oh, that could be a heart attack. And so she dreamt about it. And so, the dream was in fact predicting the future, but it was doing so because it had access to memories and information that she didn't, so that it actually could predict the future, but not in an ESP sort of a way. Hmm. The second explanation, of course, is that it's just coincidence. I once did the math and I figured out that if you had a dream about some close relative of you dying, um, I think it was four times a year, that there then became something like a 25% chance that one of those will actually be within a few days of the actual death of someone uh, close to you. That it just becomes a statistical possibility that's, that's much higher um, by chance than you might expect. Like the fact that if you have 22 people in a room there's a 50-50 chance that two of them have the same birthday. Um, that's just how the math plays out. It's nothing special. But when you find those two people in a room of so few people, it feels like it must be something special. And then I say the third possibility is that ESP actually exists. Um, but there's no good, strong evidence to support it. And there aren't really good cases, you know, nobody dreams lottery numbers. Um, nobody 
uh, has the kind of tell of future predictions in their dreams in a reliable, consistent way. Um, so my guess is that they just don't happen. Tony, what about you? Are you a believer in telepathic dreaming? Um, well, again, I, I think that what can appear to people as something that is uh, telepathic or precognitive uh, can often be explained. And uh, Bob gave an example of the, the, the woman with her, her father having a heart attack. Um, but what I like to say is that, you know, no one dreams of a plane crash or a volcanic eruption and writes to me or some other dream researcher a week later, two weeks later to say, you know what? I dreamt of a plane crash and to date there hasn't been any, right? No one does that. It's only when you see these connections, right? That, that so we have these biases. So when people write, they do say, look, I dreamt of X and then X happened. Again, um, volcanic eruption, plane crash, um, and, and when I ask these people, well, can you please, well, when you think you've had these, these clairvoyant dreams, uh, the next one you have, can you write it to me, email it to me, so I have the data, I have the details, and then we can see what happens in the future. And I'm, I'm still waiting for a good match. Uh, so again, there's these biases, but when they happen, they're quite striking and people are, uh, are taken by it. With respect to telepathic dreaming, that is, communicating to someone else uh, through telepathy uh, while they are asleep and dreaming. Uh, that too has been um, surprisingly studied. Uh, some people try to do some serious studies I, uh, about it, but there too the evidence is, um, is rather weak and, and it's also very hard thing to prove scientifically and, and to have some robust findings about. So I'm also very skeptical. I think that a lot of these things can be explained um, by chance or other explanations, which aren't really like chance, like what, what Bob mentioned, because we underestimate the wealth of information that is stored uh, in our brains and things that we might not clearly recall on and how the brain goes about putting them together in innovative and creative ways that might you know, show us something in the future and that we go, oh my gosh, that, that really happened. And we fail to see how our brain actually used stuff that it knew to predict that. And, and again, there's these biases because when there's no correspondences, we kind of just uh, forget them. So I'm skeptical, um, um, and, but I think there's still a lot of things that we are trying to figure out and working out and understanding uh, about the brain and social dimensions uh, of the brain, including in dreams, is still one that I think that um, needs quite a bit of ironing out. So who knows, but at this point, no, I don't think there's any uh, good convincing evidence uh, for any of these phenomena beyond these kinds of explanations we've given. That being said, you'll always find anecdotes of, you know, and if these anecdotes are true, I, I can only, you know, put my hands in the air and going, look, if you're, if you want a scientific explanation, I don't have one. If you want me to talk to you about the collective unconscious and other worlds, well, then we can engage in that. Uh, but that's a whole other kind of conversation you should you have over a beer. <laughs> Uh, final topic, guys. I uh, certainly wanted to get into this. This is something that happened in popular culture since the last time that we spoke. 
prior to last year's Super Bowl, Coors announced that they were going to start advertising in our dreams as part of their Super Bowl commercial. Hearing this, I couldn't help but think that life was imitating an episode of Black Mirror. But for you guys, uh, as guys who study dreams, whose life is dreams in so many ways, shape, or forms, what was your initial response to hearing this news? And Tony, we'll start with you on this one. Uh, well, we were a little dismayed. Um, and then as we uh, got into the details of this and how the project came about, what it was done, how it was presented, how other companies are trying to do something similar, it actually um, helped galvanize us and many of our colleagues into doing different things. So uh, we think the dangers are sufficiently real and worrisome. Uh, and what I mean by dangers is that um, there are different ways we believe that sleep and maybe dreams can be uh, hacked, manipulated, influenced uh, in a way that is either known or unbeknownst to the person, but in ways that can influence what they think, their behaviors, their purchases. Uh, and then we'd rather be proactive about uh, this and that we should be clear-eyed about what these technologies can do, how they can be used. Um, and so we put out um, this one statement, uh, sort of sounding an alarm about these developments signed by over uh, 40 sleep and dream researchers. Uh, we also wrote a piece in a, a free online magazine called uh, Eon, where we sort of detailed our concerns and gave examples of how these technologies can be used. So the, the pre-Super Bowl Coors ad was a, a marketing coup. And I think it was done uh, partly in jest, part again, just to draw attention. Uh, but behind it was this idea that, hey, maybe we can tap into people's sleep, people's dreams and influence their behaviors. And the fact that companies are considering this is also evident because in um, in last year's conference in New York with the American Marketing Association, there was over 408 marketing agencies present there, and 77% said they had plans to use dream tech kind of engineering techniques um, for advertisement in the next three years. And we know that either through trying to influence the images people have as they are falling asleep, known as hypnagogic images, or what is known as targeted memory reactivation, ways that you can pair things that you see and do during wakefulness and memorize uh, with these other uh, stimuli that can, you can reactivate in people's sleep, uh, that you can shift their preferences and their studies done on preferences for candies, um, things that we find disgusting. And you can do these things in people's sleep. And what is also worrisome is that people can have, don't need to have a memory that these things were done in their sleep for us to observe effects. So uh, I, I think these technologies are being developed. There's good science behind them. Uh, but again, we're worried about how they can be used. And so um, much of these texts that we've written uh, to draw attention to this really aims at us trying to be proactive and not finding ourselves in a situation like we are now with our tech giants going, oh, well, we didn't know that they would be collecting this personal data and sharing it and that this would not be known to us. And there these be these breaches and that people would target us with these ads and so on. And we think that this may be coming in sleep. And if you think that 
how much money people are willing to invest to catch your attention watching TV for 20 seconds spot. Imagine if they could access seven, eight hours of your life every night of your life. <laughs> how much is that worth? That is crazy and to so, think about. Oh, go ahead, Bob. Well, I, 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 I agree with everything Tony said. I just want to bring home a couple of more points. When we're asleep, um, our usual critical, rational, logical thinking brain is pretty much shut down. We don't have the filters that let us listen to an advertisement on TV and say, yeah, well, that would be right, except for the fact that yada, 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 it, it's, it's total nonsense. They're just throwing it at us to try to get us to buy their product. And they think, you know, that we're going to buy into this this argument that they're putting forward that's nonsense. When we're asleep, we don't have that filter. The brain and the mind sort of evolved on the assumption that what comes at us while we're asleep comes from inside, from our own memories and our own connections between those memories. Um, there have been good things done with this sort of sleep intervention. Someone did a study where they took cigarette smokers and paired the odors of cigarettes with the odor of rotten fish hmm. and presented them to people while they were sleeping. And their cigarette smoking number of cigarettes dropped in half for the next week, even though none of them reported that they had any smells presented or remembered any smells from while they were sleeping. But you can imagine a cigarette company doing the opposite, pairing it with roses or chocolate to try to make cigarette smoking going up. I mean, it's terrifying to realize that the actual goal of, of Cora's advertising campaign there was trying to slip below the sort of conscious awareness of the individual and induce them to use more of a deadly drug. Well, I don't think there's any limits to what they will, will try to sell. And I think you know, 30 million, 30 million Americans have smart speakers in their bedroom. Um, you give them a couple of years and those smart speakers will be able to determine when the person falls asleep and quite likely even what sleep stage they're in. You might very well be getting advertisements already while you're asleep. So you, uh, you guys believe that this is going to become a, a subconscious process because one of the more disheartening things for me about the Miller Coors news last year was that, look, I expect this out of a corporation. I expect this out of an advertising agency to try and find that next quote unquote great way to get into the minds of a potential consumer. It was more about it requiring the active participation of the person who wanted to let that advertisement into their sleeping lives. But things are going to advance so quickly that it won't even necessarily require that as much as it is just having that smart speaker within five feet of you. That's right. And by the way, not just corporations, white nationalists, Trump supporters, anti-Semites, they can all be trying to convince you to believe things that if you had your waking filters on, you would never consider, but now you're totally vulnerable to. Hmm. Well, one thing also that I just want to reiterate, you know, Bob was mentioning the study where they paired cigarette smoke with, with fraud and fish smells, and this was presenting people's sleep and, re and led to significant reductions in their cigarette smoking. 
the two things to keep in mind about that study is that, again, as Bob mentioned, these people had no recollection that there had been these pairings in their sleep. Moreover, if you do the study when the people are awake, if you present to them when they're awake, cigarette smells with rotten fish, it has no impact on their behaviors. It doesn't change one iota of their smoking. So again, you're accessing here a really privileged mechanisms that go on in people's sleep. And even if you say, oh, I agree to them to present these stimuli, when they are being presented, whatever manipulations there are, you are asleep. You've, you've waived everything, right? You, you, don't, you don't really know what you are agreeing to, what is being done, what are the effects. Um, and so it's the power, not just of these advertisements, but of delivering them in people's sleep. And as we discover more and more what sleep does, you can see how powerful this tool is for potentially good things, treating PTSD, nightmares, anxiety, there's all kinds of potential applications for these technologies, uh, but also as we see here, some rather disconcerting ones. Yeah, we've, we've actually started trying to get in touch with the uh, FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC banned subliminal advertisements on the grounds that if people are not aware that they're seeing them, um, it amounts to false advertising because it, it's, it's an advertising that the people don't get to, to reject if they disagree with. And we would love to get the FTC to make a similar ruling uh, about advertising in our dreams. Is there something that anybody who is listening right now can do to help that process along? Because, you know, what you've just talked about is terrifying and it is crucial that we put some safeguards in place yeah. to keep this from happening. Yeah. Well, right you... your, I was just going to say, write to your congressmen, write to your senators, okay. um, tell them the FTC should ban this. Tony, I was yeah, you send me $10 a month and I'll uh, I'll ensure that you have ad-free dreams every night. I mean, who knows what slope we're, we're on now. Uh, but again, the idea is that let's, let's try to be proactive. You know, Bob mentioned the subliminal advertising. Well, it, it turned out that the impact of subliminal advertisement was quite minimal. It wasn't as dangerous or as potent as people had anticipated. But we've seen in many other examples with other technologies where their power and their potential grasp over our lives was infinitely greater than we had imagined. So we think with this new frontier, it'll be somewhere between the two. Maybe it's much ado about nothing, or maybe it'll really be quite horrific in terms of what may come down the road in a few years, in a decade, or for our children. And, you know, I mean, I, you can also envision neural links, you know, where, where you're, you're actually locked into or hooked into these virtual worlds in your sleep and your brain is wired up for it. I mean, let, let's try to be proactive and see what, what are these technologies, what could they do, how could they be used, and uh, try to think about what the potential consequences are so that they can be uh, you know, governed and let, let, let's put some rules in place to how to use them, like we do with genetics, with CRISPR and, and many other exciting but potentially dangerous technologies before it's a fait accompli, before, just, you know, before running out to buy cores and unknowingly why. Right. And I just want to point out, you only have to flip. You would have only had to have flipped 3% of voters in the U.S. 
back in, in 2020 to have put Trump back in office again. Mm. And regardless of where you sit in relationship to who you wanted to be president, we shouldn't who have who's our president be decided by who manipulates our dreams more effectively. That's a great point. And by the way, Tony, I may have to send you $10 a month just based on the enjoyment I get from your travel photos on Instagram at Dr. <laughs> so uh, be expecting that check in the mail. Uh, he is Tony Zadra, professor at the University of Montreal and a researcher at the Center for Advanced Research in Sleep Medicine. He has appeared in PBS's Nova and BBC's Horizon. Robert Stickgold is a professor at Harvard Medical School and director of the Center for Sleep and Cognition. His writing has appeared in Scientific American and Newsweek, amongst other publications. Together, a year ago, they wrote the excellent book, When Brains Dream, Exploring the Science and Mystery of Sleep. You can get it now in paperback. Guys, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you again for this book. It was one of my favorites of 2021, and now it's going to be one of my favorite paperbacks in 2022. Thanks, Trey. It's a pleasure. Always nice uh, being on here, Trey. Thanks again, and, and thanks for the wonderful podcasts you send our way. Uh, they're, they're really a lot of fun. I mean it. My pleasure. Take care, guys. Okay. Will do. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.